0: hello my beautiful people and welcome back to the care cafe podcast i am so excited to have you all on here for another day of the care cafe especially because we have a very special guest who is going to walk us through really what therapy when it comes to trauma and ptsd looks like and as we you know dive more into our new series becoming the most authentic you we really wanted to cover this because. Trauma and PTSD is something that is really tough on people and it's something that people don't really share about or they're not open about, and really learning how to reclaim your own life through therapy and through getting help and, you know, through finding your own self again, through whatever that means, is truly, truly important, and I hope that you all are able to take away from this amazing message. So, Dr. Van stolt would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Dr. Cassie Van stout I'm a clinical psychologist, um, and I have a specialization in treatment uh, for PTSD and other trauma-related disorders. I am um, currently a postdoc at Stanford University, and I work with Dr. Deborah Kaysen, who's one of the premier experts on PTSD and trauma. Um, so it's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you today, Kristen, and I'm looking forward to getting into it.
0: Thank you so so much for you know that amazing introduction and you know you have just such a great wide field of expertise and I think that when it comes to trauma a lot of people do get this term mixed up with some other things so just to first start off our conversation I wanted to ask what does trauma mean to you and what do you think that people tend to not understand about true traumas? It's a great
1: question. So, I think uh, where I would start is with uh, just a recognition that the term trauma, as it's used in the field of psychology and in the field of therapy and counseling, is quite different than the term as it's used in an everyday way. You may mm-hmm. um, have spent time with friends who were chatting and something kind of awkward or scary happened and they're like oh my god I was traumatized by that I I think we've all had that experience at some point of somebody using that term in that way and that's the Mm -hmm. more colloquial way to use it Mm -hmm. um however in my I feel the term trauma is pretty specific and our definition is more strict and I'll get into the reasons why in a second. A trauma is defined in my field as exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Um, And even within the more narrow scope of death and serious injury, traumas tend to be shocking, horrific, extreme, and unexpected events. So a common... um, An easy way to differentiate trauma from something else is, let's say, a loved one dies unexpectedly in a car crash. That's a trauma.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. A loved one who is elderly dying after a long illness that was expected is not a trauma. Um, It is extremely stressful. It can be very distressing for the person who's experiencing it. But we do make those differentiations. And the reason why we do that is because PTSD, which is a common reaction to exposure to trauma, is more likely to come from a shocking or severe capital T trauma than, let's say, a severe stressor or a lowercase t trauma. Some of these uh, events that we can plan for or expect or organize our bodies and our minds around.
0: Mm, I see. So... Just as a follow-up question, I know you were talking about how we're able to differentiate different traumas or, um, you know, little T stressors from big T traumas through the severity of it and the characteristics of it. Do you think that also ties into maybe how therapy when it comes to people dealing with these stressors and then people dealing with these big T traumas also plays out and how is therapy different um, if people go to therapy for either of those two things?
1: Yes. So because the symptoms of stress and the symptoms of post-traumatic stress are different, mm-hmm. the treatments are different. And so mm-hmm. part of the reason why we're so strict in differentiating is because treatments and other treatments better address symptoms like depression, anxiety, or other types of disorders more effectively than a PTSD treatment would. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. Wow, that's very interesting to really take a look into. So um, when it comes to those treatments and therapy, what are the types of therapy involved and is there a certain criteria for a person with PTSD where therapy um, or some sort of therapy is most recommended for them?
1: So there are many different types of therapy and the two in which I'm an expert are cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. But um, in one's day-to-day life, one might come across many, many, many different types of therapy. Mm, The reason why we focus on CPT, cognitive processing therapy, and PE, prolonged exposure, are because those are the two gold standard best treatments across many, many, many years of study Mm -hmm. and across many different research protocols. We've determined that these are the two most effective psychotherapies for PTSD. So those are the ones that I focus on implementing with my patients. And they're the ones that we're most likely to implement at Stanford in our PTSD clinic.
0: Oh, wow. Very interesting. So I was also wondering when someone goes into therapy, it is a process, um, especially, you know, when you decide like, I do want to be um, in therapy, I do want to get like professional help when it comes to someone's trauma or PTSD. And then they have to choose between those two therapies. What do you think makes a difference um, once they enter that process between a short-term recovery and then following a relapse after that therapy versus long-term recovery from PTSD and then finally truly healing? And um, what are some things or patterns that you may see when it comes to that differentiation?
1: That's a really interesting question. So what I might start by saying is that we should – pump the brakes, and think quickly together about what relapse is.
0: Mm, So Uh
1: uh, we use the term relapse, right? Uh, And that term comes from the substance use field. You've heard of relapsing on alcohol, Mm -hmm. for example. And we do use that term as it relates to other disorders, too. You can have a major depressive relapse. You can have a relapse of anxiety. And you can also have a relapse of PTSD. But much like A relapse to substance use is a normal part of recovery. Relapses in symptoms of PTSD also can be a normal part of recovery. Mm. So what I want to make sure is that we're not saying relapse necessarily means you're not recovering from PTSD because it can be a part of recovery. And I'll explain what that trajectory looks like in a minute. On the other side is this question of long-term recovery, right? So One thing that I think, Kristen, you and I talked about the last time we connected is the fact that PTSD is experienced by a very small minority of people who are exposed to trauma. Mm
0: -hmm. Definitely.
1: So, actually, the vast majority of people who experience a trauma, let's say a car crash or some sort of life-threatening accident or injury, have maybe... An uncomfortable few weeks or even a month Mm -hmm. of nightmares or even flashbacks and difficulty sleeping. Right. But they get better all by themselves without treatment.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: So, natural recovery after trauma is actually the norm. PTSD is a disorder of non recovery from trauma. So, in general, anybody who meets criteria for PTSD, let's say that they go into a therapy office. They say, I'm having these symptoms, so they get an assessment to figure out what diagnosis best fits them and what treatment best fits them, and they come out with a diagnosis of PTSD. Mm -hmm. They have a disorder of non-recovery, right? So anybody who has PTSD is in this non-recovery bracket, but it's a very fixable problem. Mm -hmm. Now, once you've done treatment, probably treatment, especially an effective evidence-based treatment, will bring your symptoms down. So you'll be feeling better, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll have coping tools and skills for moving forward in your life. However, there will probably be triggers and other stressors in your life as you get older, as you move on with your life that might bring some symptoms back. And so we talk about relapse as a more normal part of recovery. Mm -hmm. Something to prepare for. Something that You might want to have flags in your mind to watch out for as they come up so that you know, just like, let's say you were taking a daily vitamin, right? And you stopped taking it and after, and you were feeling pretty good, but after a while you started to notice the effects of not taking it, it would be an indicator to up your dose again, Mm -hmm. right? So go back to taking that vitamin. It's the same way with psychotherapy. So maybe you're, you're using the skills, you're doing great, you're feeling good. So you stop using the skills you move on for a while you feel fine a trigger happens a severe stressor in your life happens your symptoms come back you gotta up your dose you gotta return to the coping strategies and the skills you used in therapy just like you would with anything else
0: yeah i find that so interesting and thank you so much for sharing that because i think that's great advice to like stay consistent with you know the things that you have learned because i remember we also talked about You know, once you have those skills, you have them for the rest of your life. It's like an investment and, you know, they would always be like with you and, you know, you don't have to go back and try to get them because skills are something you have um, eternally, which, you know, is super, super important to take note of. So thank you so, so much for sharing that because, you know, I feel like a lot of people in those situations when they re-experience a situation or have a trigger, they you know, try to avoid it. And I think that also ties into like our common culture right now of trigger warning, telling people to avoid things um, instead of approach them. So yes, thank you so, so much for sharing that. I was also wondering, so when someone were to enter, you know, therapy, what made these sessions look like and how are professionals are um, able to like, allow their patients to get better and fully recover as we talked about um, with consistently trying out those um, and practicing those coping mechanisms while respecting their patients' boundaries? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: it's a great question. So the very beginning of therapy, especially when you're doing a proper evidence-based therapy, is actually a little dry and boring. The way that we start off is by going through a consenting process, making sure people understand the limits of confidentiality, Mm -hmm. all of the kind of boring, paperworky, privacy-oriented things. And then we engage in a period of assessment. And in that period of assessment, we're really trying to figure out what is the patient's history, What is bringing them in? What have they tried to cope with their problems before? What's worked and what hasn't? All of those moving pieces. And then we engage in what's called a semi-structured interview. And in the semi-structured interview, we conduct all sorts of assessment to figure out if there is a diagnosis at play of a psychological problem and what would be the best psychological treatment that problem. Mm -hmm. So the symptoms of PTSD include symptoms like intrusive memories, flashbacks, avoidance, low mood, kind of uncomfortable emotions of fear or shame or shock, um, hypervigilance, maybe lashing out and anger. So as you can maybe hear, some of these symptoms are very specific to PTSD. A flashback I think if I say the term flashback, probably all of your listeners would think, yep, PTSD, I know what that's about, right? (laughs) But other symptoms like low mood or anger, Mm -hmm. other symptoms like shame come up in all sorts of disorders. So it's very important to complete a thorough assessment to figure out, is this really PTSD or is it something else? Mm -hmm. So once you've conducted assessment. The next phase of treatment is a feedback session where the therapist says, based on everything that you've told me, based on the interviews we've had, this is what I think is going on. What do you think about this picture I'm painting of where this problem came from, how it came to be? Make any corrections or adjustments to this idea I've developed of what's going on. That way, the patient really, first of all, I think feels paid attention to, listened to, and seen for what they're coming in for. Mm -hmm. And it's an opportunity to create buy-in about what the best treatment would be.
0: Yes, definitely. Once
1: you've done, yeah. And then once you've done that feedback session, you pick a treatment together. Now, for both prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy, I would say that the sessions are somewhat graded in nature. So they start with Uh, what we call psychoeducation, which is an orientation to what the goals and structure and expectations of the treatment are. Again, it's important to get consent that these treatments, uh, first and foremost, they involve experiencing discomfort in sessions. You have Mm -hmm. to make sure that people understand that. They involve doing homework outside of session, both of these therapies include daily homework outside of session with the idea being that you need to practice these skills if you come in once a week and you talk about them that's very nice but you're not going to see the kind of progress or change you would get from really implementing the skills every single day week Mm -hmm. after week after week so then the sessions involve in the uh in the context of cognitive processing therapy a true and deep examination of the stories the patient is telling himself about the traumas, why the trauma happened, and what role they think they played. And the goal of cognitive processing therapy is to disentangle that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: On the prolonged exposure side, the therapy consists of re-exposing the person in therapy to the memories of the trauma that they have that create a lot of distress. Mm-hmm. And so those exposures, you can think of more like a fear factor paradigm, where you're facing the boogeyman of this memory over and over and over again mm-hmm. until you become habituated to it, until you get bored. And so that includes work both inside and outside of sessions in both cases.
0: Wow, I see. And I find that really interesting because it's also like – you tailor your therapy to what your patient needs best, and because I feel like the field of psychology right now is looking at things at the individual level because we're all different, um, and even though like we may be like bi- like biologically similar, or you know some people may have like very similar like brain structures. The output of that is always going to be very different. So I find that super interesting how therapy, you know, in PTSD is like that and also how, um, you know, professionals and psychologists are able to, you know, allow their patients to be able to consistently practice whatever it is um, when it comes to cognitive processing therapy or prolonged experience exposure therapy. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Van Stuck for sharing that. Um, I also had a follow-up question in regards to, um, you know, having those types of therapies. I know that, um, let's say that someone has like an extreme trauma when it comes to like snakes Um, and you know, they were to like enter prolonged exposure therapy because, um, you know, that is the therapy they choose to or may seem most fit for them. Um, what does that therapy like step-by-step look like when it comes to exposure and how do you um, also like allow the patient to like slowly get more um, into the therapy and not be like afraid by like you know bringing them a snake all of a sudden um, and giving them like the hard like thing first off um, so how does that therapy specifically look like um, just to make the patient feel comfortable also
1: It's a great question and the example of snakes is an interesting and useful one for one particular reason, which is that a fear of snakes, actually going back to that idea of proper assessment, Mm -hmm. is more likely to result in a diagnosis of a specific phobia of snakes. Than it uh-huh. is of PTSD, so mm-hmm. that's again where assessment comes in because specific phobias do use exposure treatments. That's right. the frontline treatment for specific phobias. Let's let's say of snakes or fear of heights or fear mm-hmm.
0: of
1: flying. Um, all mm-hmm. of these types of specific feared stimuli
0: mm-hmm. are
1: called specific phobias, and yeah. so we actually give a different diagnosis for that, but. We can certainly use the framework to help, um, to help your listeners understand how prolonged exposure works. So, in prolonged exposure, let's say that what I am coming in with is a traumatic memory of being exposed to uh, a car crash, mm-hmm. so I was in a terrible car crash, and now I'm scared of driving scared of getting in a car um i avoid um movies that involve like high speed chase scenes i'm doing all sorts of things in my life that really kind of point to the fact that i had this really big bad accident and Mm -hmm. i don't want to encounter any cues related to cars or driving or accidents ever again now the problem with this is that you can't live in the United States, which is a very car centric country, yeah. without being exposed to cars. Mm-hmm. You're going to need to get back in a car at some point, right? You're going to need to drive at some point. Right. And so the reasons for being in therapy should feel pretty clear at this point. But the fear is so high. So in prolonged exposure, we focus on two different types of exposure paradigms. The first type is called imaginal exposure. You might hear the word imagine or imagination in that term because the exposures are just to the memory. So that involves recounting the event that happened to you, to your therapist in a 90 minute session over and over and over again, tracking how distressed you feel while you're remembering and noticing that that distress is going to Kind of skyrocket up front and then come down all by itself mm-hmm. so that's one type of exposure then the other type of exposure is called in vivo exposure and that's more like the snake exposure you were talking about <laughs> where you throw a snake in somebody's <laughs> face right yeah so the in vivo exposure is the exposure to the real-life scenario the real thing that is such a cue for the distress the real tangible trigger mm-hmm. whether that's sitting in a in a car um, while it's not running then turning the car on right in your next exposure and maybe driving in a parking lot in your next exposure so as you can see what we do is we create what's called an exposure hierarchy which is like a ladder of um, exposure opportunities from the least stressful the most doable to the hardest And so we never start people off with the hardest exposure. It is very important in any sort of exposure treatment, whether it's for specific phobias or for PTSD, to make sure that the very first exposure you ask your client to do is something that they are 99.999% guaranteed to succeed at. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want people to come in and bail and then tell themselves this story that they failed. Right. So you start with something, low stakes that being said it should induce some fear so if there's no fear of doing it it's too easy so it's about finding a sweet spot on those very first exposures Mm -hmm. where the person really doesn't want to do it and I've definitely heard my clients say you're mean you know I can't (laughs) believe you're making me do this thing I don't want to do right Mm -hmm. so you're you're pushing them outside their comfort zone but not to a place that they cannot go it is always important in exposures that the exposures are safe and they're totally doable Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: that people have that experience of facing their fear and conquering the boogeyman
0: that is right because at the end of the day like hopefully that fear does go away once you know slowly by slowly you know they're getting exposure to whatever they're afraid of whether that's like phobia or something that's more traumatic when it comes to like a traumatic memory so thank you so much for sharing that um i also wanted to ask um in specifics to therapy um, sometimes we've talked about that relapse can happen, although it is really, really rare. Um, rare. Um, I was wondering if someone is not fully healed after therapy, if that um, isn't all possible, how are they able to move forward to make sure that happens um, when it comes to, let's say, like follow-up sessions or maybe consistently practicing or any other restructuring that takes place that people just um, may not know about until after they get towards that state um, in therapy?
1: So that's a really interesting question. And again, I think the humdinger here is to kind of like we did with the term relapse Mm -hmm. is really think about what we mean when we say fully healed. Yeah. You know, so let's say you have a diagnosis of a medical condition and you take antibiotics for it, and the condition goes away, right? Mm -hmm. In a medical model, you're cured. You never (laughs) have that condition again, right? Like, yay, hooray. With mental health, that model doesn't work as well for a lot of reasons, but Mm -hmm. most importantly because a human life is complex, right? And emotions are complex. Mm -hmm. And there is no world and this is actually, I think, very important, just PSA, for people to remember. There is no world in which we never experience negative emotions ever again. Yeah. Right? Negative emotions are actually a part of the beautiful and complicated landscape of being a human being. Yeah. And if we didn't have negative experiences, if we didn't have negative emotions or suffering, We would not be whole people. That's so true. Right?
0: Yeah.
1: So it's important to remember that unlike a medical condition, which you can maybe take medicine for and make it go away, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we can't make uncomfortable experiences go away. We can't make memories not be memories anymore. Mm -hmm. We can't make pain not be pain. There will be pain. Yeah. There will be discomfort. There will be triggers. So it's not about healing to the point where all you ever feel is happiness and joy, because frankly that would be kind of creepy, yeah, right?
0: And our experience is healing. Go away. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's healing to the point where okay, so you're facing something, and it's scary and it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're triggered. Okay, so you're going through something really hard. You know that you can manage you know that you have the tools and the resources both within yourself and within your community. You know how to access relationships and friendships that will support you. You know all the things you need to do to help yourself ride the wave of that suffering because like anything else, just like happiness is not something that we can sustain at its peak forever, we can't, sustain, we can't sustain suffering at its peak forever either. We ride these experiences like waves and then they come down. So I say that just to remind people that being fully healed after therapy doesn't mean making the distress go away. It does mean that you have tools and you know what to do when, and when if it will be inevitable, that distress comes back into your life. So, for those people, you know, what I ask my clients to do um, in prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy, there are specific um, instruction guides and worksheets that people do throughout the therapy that I ask them to keep in a binder. Okay. And they have that uh-huh. physical binder for the rest of their life. <laughs> in other therapies I do for other conditions uh-huh. where there might not be worksheets, I ask my clients patients to keep a notebook where they take notes on our sessions and they and they record their homework in that notebook and their key takeaways and again they have that notebook for forever so mm-hmm. the first thing I would suggest to somebody who maybe has come to the other side of treatment and is out in their life and experiencing what we'll, we'll call a relapse is to reach for that binder reach for that notebook go back to the basics where did they start where are they now and what? skills do they think might be useful for coping with whatever the unique stressor is that they're dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. I do offer patients a booster session between two and three months out of therapy just to check in on how people are doing, to ask them what they're still using a lot of the time, to ask them what skills may have fallen off, just as an opportunity to see where they've come on their own. Now, nine times out of ten, people are doing much better in those sessions, those booster sessions, two or three months out. But if they're having problems, we can always do a quick reassessment and figure out what's going on and if maybe some other thing might be indicated for them. So one common thing that happens is that once you treat one disorder... It creates the space for you to realize that you're, you've are you been also dealing with something else, right? Yeah, and like so, morbidity. you know, let's say I, I've had a lot of clients, for instance, who say, okay, my PTSD is in much better shape, but my sleep isn't good. So I might refer them to a sleep clinic. Or, mm-hmm. yes, my PTSD is better, but I am still experiencing periods of depression. So I might refer them to a depression treatment, right? So those are options if people are still not feeling well after. Um, But in general, you know, one of the things I love about CPT and prolonged exposure is the piece you already talked about, which is you get these skills in a three-month period of working with a therapist, you have them forever. You will never be without them. No amount of, um, insurance, you know, not having insurance or not having enough money to pay for this or that or the other thing can ever take away your skills. And that, to me, is a real superpower of these treatments.
0: Yes, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I loved what you said because it is possible for triggers to come back and remind people of their traumas again and you know your memories can never disappear they're always going to be a part of you know who you are but at the end of the day self-reflecting and you know realizing like these are the things that you do have in your coping toolkit um, are things that will allow you to build your resilience you know and face those situations head-on so thank you so so much for giving all of that amazing advice and sharing all that all of those beautiful words, Dr. Van Cook. Cook. Um, I really loved it and loved hearing it because you know it is so true that that is the case, and um, you know that is why I think that therapy is such a beautiful thing. Um, and before we finalize with our last question, I wanted to you know do a leeway into that by asking in your opinion, why do you believe in PTSD therapy and why should someone seek out professional help if they need it?
1: Oh my gosh, such a great question. So, I think that one of the biggest problems that comes up for people when they have PTSD um, is what they then tell themselves about what it means about themselves or other people or the world that this happened to
0: them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah.
1: So a person goes through a trauma and all of a sudden the world doesn't seem like such a safe place. All of a sudden people don't seem as trustworthy and maybe they themselves feel in some way damaged or scarred. And that idea that I am permanently damaged because I went through something bad is the, is the lie that PTSD tells to the brain. This is the biggest hoax that PTSD teaches the human mind. It is that because I've been through something terrible, I can never recover. And what I love about these treatments is that they are the antidote to that lie. They really help people see that they are resilient, that they can shift their symptoms themselves with hard work, and that they can come out to the other side and not only Might they not have post-traumatic stress? They might find themselves stronger and, and, and more resilient. They might experience growth having been through that hard or adverse life experience. So these treatments, what they do is they combat that myth that because a person has encountered trauma, they are permanently damaged. It is not true. And these treatments do a really great job of showing people Proof
0: in their own minds, definitely, thank you so much for sharing that and I definitely agree because it's all that structuring within someone's thought process that ultimately allows them to feel that way, and at the end of the day, if they're able to you know find someone to allow them to not be in that scenario um or not like have that scenario in that mind in their minds, it can really make a big difference um you know in their own lives because someone's mindset is really important and really everything. So, you know, thank you so so much for that and that was so meaningful. So, to all of my listeners on here today, if you ever feel like that is something for you, um definitely you have learned what therapy looks like um when it comes to trauma and PTSD. And, um, you know, definitely there is a way for you to seem fit or just therapy in general, I think, is something that is really powerful. It doesn't have to be for trauma, but just in general, you get these amazing skills and tools and, you know, they're going to be with you and allow you to be more resilient in your everyday life. That you are someone who is really, really passionate about therapy and also have a large expertise when it comes to PTSD, trauma, but also some other fields. Um, in psychology that really do apply to a lot of people today so I wanted to ask what are your favorite resources for people struggling with PTSD or healing from trauma or from anything in general and where whether it's like books or podcasts or different types of therapy that you really believe in and support and what are those reasons for why mm-hmm.
1: well I think that one of the best resources out there and I'll do a little plug for my mentor Dr. Kason. <laughs> is the This American Life podcast episode called 10 Sessions, which actually is an episode that covers Dr. Kaysen conducting cognitive processing therapy with a journalist who experienced sexual assault trauma in 10 sessions conducted over 10 days,
0: 10 consecutive
1: days. And it is an amazing, powerful podcast. And the thing I loved about it and the reason I'm so passionate about it is because It really perfectly captures how CPT works Mm -hmm. to change a person's trauma symptoms. And for me, just on a personal level, it was something I could share with family and friends and say, look, 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 this is what my therapy sessions look like. This is what it looks like when I do my job. Because, of course, limitations of privacy and confidentiality makes it hard for people to know what's going on on the inside of therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. So this was a really, this is a really amazing resource to show people, um, what CPT can do, um, and to get them excited about the idea of maybe doing one of these treatments because the treatments are tough, but they make you feel better really quick, which is an amazing payoff for the hard work of it.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Um, let's see. There is, there are a couple other ones. So, um. Another good podcast is the Believed podcast on NPR. Um, That's a great resource for people interested in learning more about PTSD. Um, For people for whom sexual assault on college campuses is a concern, The Hunting Ground is a a resource I would Google um, and look up. And then if you're, I mean, I think that the classic trauma type that people are interested in Um, is combat trauma, right? Military trauma. Mm -hmm. War Torn is a great resource. I don't remember if it's a movie or a TV show, but War Torn is a great resource for combat trauma
0: and learning more about what that looks like. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that. And definitely, if you're listening, do check out all of those resources because, you know, there are so many things that we could learn from and, you know, educate ourselves about trauma and therapy, um, even if you don't go through these things, because there are probably people around you who may be doing so, but in silence. So, um, definitely really, really great to keep yourself educated. And thank you so much for, you know, all of those amazing, amazing resources, Dr. Bansel Cook. Um, and then finally, I wanted to ask, (laughs) um, so you have like so many, so many great things out there and have done so much good work I wanted to ask where can my listeners find you to continue to consume all of your goodness and all of your information and just simply learn more about you
1: so the first place that I would ask people to go is to my google scholar page if you look up my name on google scholar you'll find all of my published works Um, these are mostly um, evidence-based empirical articles on topics related to trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be one place to go. And also my profile on Stanford is available along with contact information for me there. Um, And your listeners can feel free to reach out with questions.
0: Thank you so much for today, Dr. Vancell-Cook. It was an amazing time and um, talking with you. We had the best conversation ever that you know I've had because I learned so much about therapy that you know I didn't really know about because there is like that door when it's like when you're in therapy what are like when you're outside of it and having that inside look is something that's so amazing and you know I love how you know we're able to get that great insight so thank you so much for sharing that and for today it's
1: my pleasure